Greetings and salutations, listeners. This is Volts for October 24th, 2022. Why social change is so excruciatingly difficult. I'm your host, David Roberts. When looking over the course of human history, we tend to focus on times of disruption, when the established order is crumbling and something new is rising. But if we take a step back, something different strikes us. The vast majority of human history is characterized by small groups of people wielding often brutal power over massive numbers of others without substantial resistance. Most of the time, the masses accept subjugation at the hands of a small cabal that they could almost definitionally overwhelm if properly organized. From this perspective, what's needed is not an explanation of why people rebel against systems that are not in their self-interest, but why they so often, most often, do not. What demands explanation is voluntary servitude. Why do people so often, rather than organizing and rising up against injustice, internalize the ideology of their oppressors and come to view themselves as naturally or fittingly subjugated. And it's not just history where such an explanation is demanded, it's also current events. Why have the citizens of developed democracies endured two decades of misbegotten wars, financial crises, and rising authoritarianism with very little in the way of radical resistance? Noted psychologist, researcher, and author John Jost of New York University offers an explanation. People have extremely strong psychological needs that weigh against thinking of themselves as subjugated victims. They crave certitude, closure, safety, and predictability. They are inclined for these reasons toward what is called system justification, as Jost writes, quote, people are motivated, often unconsciously, without deliberate intention or awareness, to defend, justify, and bolster aspects of the status quo, including existing social, economic, and political institutions and arrangements, end quote. The tendency to justify unjust systems is pervasive, even and especially among the people those systems treat worst. This means that everyone working for positive change is starting behind the eight ball, rolling a rock up a hill. I read Jost's two recent books, A Theory of System Justification and Left and Right, The Psychological Significance of a Political Distinction, earlier this summer, and I've been thinking about them ever since. So I'm thrilled to talk to him about the evidence for system justification theory the way it is distributed among conservatives and liberals, and ways those seeking social change can work around it. Without any further ado, Professor John Jost, welcome to Volts, and thank you very much for coming. Thanks so much, David. It's uh, great to be with you today. Uh, that was an outstanding summary of much of my work, especially the book on system justification. So I'm not really sure what I have to add. <laughs> well, we're done here. Thanks for coming and saying hi. Uh, well, let's jump right into the main thing so we can just um, give people a sense of what we're talking about. So 
I frame it this way. I think ordinary people are familiar with self-justification, which just has to do with the fact that we're inclined to accept stories or interpret things or perceive things in a way that justifies our own position and interests. I think people get that pretty clearly. And then there's group justification, which I think people also get intuitively. People are inclined to sort of believe what justifies their group in that group, you know, can be their race, a geographical group, lots of different kinds of groups. But then there's this third thing that you identify called system justification, which has to do with people's inclination to sort of tell stories and believe things that justify the larger systems of which they are a part. And I think the reason people stumble on this a little bit is that it often seems like system justification pushes us in directions contrary to self-justification and group justification. It's often the case that we are embedded in larger social systems that are not particularly good for us. <laughs> you know, we're in the, in the sort of lower rungs. And even then, we have this tendency to justify those systems. So tell us, you know, for people who find the notion of this somewhat counterintuitive, explain sort of the evidence for it. Yes, I think that's well said. But just before I get to the evidence, let me kind of clarify the point that I'm trying to make. Um, it's not really that people justify the social systems because they are bad for them. It's that we justify the social systems on which we depend, whether they're good for us or not good for us. And I think of the family, for instance, as a social system. And there are a lot of things that are unique about every family, Dickens notwithstanding, <laughs> that we come to experience as natural and reasonable and legitimate and desirable for the most part. You know, some people have an awakening in adulthood where they realize that a lot of stuff that they took for granted and, and experienced as legitimate and so on wasn't. And they, they kind of look back and rewrite their experiences perhaps in their family. But for many people, they never do. And those social systems, which can be as small as a, a dyadic relationship, a marriage or uh, a family, or as large as an entire society or an economic system or a political system, cultural institutions, organizations, and so on. But these things leave a mark on us psychologically. And it's not so easy for us to get outside of them or to see them in a neutral, unbiased way, or even to see them necessarily as they are. There are a lot of ways in which our lives are easier and more subjectively satisfying to the extent that we accept those things as the default. We're going to get in just a minute into the sort of psychological needs that this answers. So I just want to like establish we're we have a very good sense that this exists. I think so. I mean, that's that's what I'm trying to. I'm reviewing you know hundreds of studies in this book called A Theory of System Justification, uh, which came out in 2020, Harvard University Press. I think there's a, a large variety of sources of evidence for this. Some c comes from history, anthropology, political science, sociology, but also experimental social psychology and surveys. And I found it really interesting that, you know, we probably don't have time to get into this, but there's, you know, large parts of the book where you're just sort of engaging in other theories, previous theories and stories from psychology and elsewhere. And, you know, all these different attempts to explain why do people not just put up with being subjugated, but in a sense, participate in it. Why do they, you know, why do they um, adopt the ideology of their oppressors? Yeah. And there's been lots of different attempts to explain this, you know, like maybe it's in their self-interest, 
you know, maybe there's uh, money on the line. Maybe they do it out of fear of reprisal. But sort of what you come back to over and over again is, no, there's something even, you know, even if you subtract all those things, there's something left at the root. Yeah, that's very well said. It's not that I'm saying those other things don't matter. I'm just saying that they're not sufficient to explain for the full extent to which we uh, participate in social systems, uh, including social systems that do contain elements of injustice and that we and other people sometimes do suffer the consequences of subscribing to the legitimacy of those social systems, which is also not to say that all social systems are unjust or illegitimate either. So the, the question then is, uh, why? Yes. Why do people have this tendency to justify systems even when the systems are not operating in their favor or not, are not doing well by them? You know, it seems counterintuitive. It seems like, based on my self-interest, I ought to be, uh, uh, lots of people ought to be rising up or rebelling or acting out, but they don't. So you identify three families of psychological needs that this system justification answers, epistemic, existential, and relational. I think probably ordinary people are not immediately going to get what those mean. Of course, so of course. let's just say a few words about each. Sort sure. of epistemic has to do with knowledge. So what are the needs there that system justification answers? I mean, the most fundamental one is a, a reduction of uncertainty. Um, most people experience uncertainty, especially high levels of uncertainty, as aversive. Um, and in fact, there are lots of situations where people would rather have a sure answer that's uh, an unfortunate or negative answer than to be left in a state of, of uncertainty for a prolonged period of time. So for most of us, we want what psychologists sometimes refer to as closure, mm -hmm. cognitive closure. We want to know at least what we think about something and then move on with the rest of our lives rather than engage in a protracted informational search that could go on forever and ever. Mm -hmm. And so the status quo, I think, has an advantage over alternatives to the status quo in the sense that it is familiar and it is certain. We know it. It's the devil we know. Uh, whereas alternative social arrangements, utopian social systems, etc., these things often raise more questions than they answer. And so for most people, and especially people who are high on, on what psychologists call needs for cognitive closure or intolerance of uh, ambiguity or uh, avoidance of uncertainty, people would rather stick with what's known and familiar um, because it reduces the degree of uncertainty that's involved. That's, that's the epistemic. So in a sense, like, we'd rather accept the idea that God has designated our group as slaves to some other group, because at least that's an answer. And if you reject it, then you don't know what God wants and you don't know <laughs> what you're supposed to be and you don't know how you're supposed to relate to other people. Yeah. And that is, for a lot of people, extremely anxiety producing. Well, that's, that's a good example because it hits all three motives. It, it gives you certainty in an epistemic sense, but it also gives you safety or security if you think that God will protect you. Uh, and save you and and even in the afterlife take care of you look out for you and it also satisfies your relational needs or motives because you're not alone in your religious group you have lots of other people who share right. that and they provide social support for you for subscribing to that ideology right so the existential needs are just a need for safety and basically this has to do with the fact that going along with your group going along with the largest system around you offers you some uh, uh, physical, Safety, people who speak up, you know, the sort of uh, um, 
squeaky wheels, you know, they draw attention and often uh, not welcome attention. It's just safer to be in the group, basically. That's what existential has to do with, yes. Yeah, that's right. Would you rather be one of the people that the police are protecting or would you rather be one of the people that the police are uh, complaining about or worse? Right. And the relational needs, I almost think, are are the strongest. I go back and forth. But, you know, relational just has to do with, you know, these the stories of the system you're in tell you how you relate to other people and, in a sense, give you that social network that humans need badly. Yeah. And if you reject that, how are you supposed to relate to other people? What are the, you know, again, you're sort of back to the uncertainty, but it's uncertainty about your social relationships, which... You know, people really need those for peace of mind. I think that's absolutely right. I, th- I think the risks of alienation are really high in a social sense. If you're a relentless critic or revolutionary, you can find quite a bit more support within your family and your neighbors and the community at large if you're, if you're a supporter of uh, the overarching social systems rather than a, a relentless critic of them. Yeah, I think uh, Dan Cahan, uh, uh, the, I think at Yale, he sort of makes that point. He's like, what's better for you as an individual to be accepted in your group and to have the group systems around you protecting you or to have accurate beliefs? What good are accurate beliefs <laughs> compared to, right, like a social system that you belong in? Like there's just no real incentive for it. Well, I wouldn't say no incentive. I think there's always <laughs> going to be some incentive for having <laughs> yeah. more or less accurate, uh, more, more than less uh, accurate perceptions, beliefs, etc. Um, I think uh, reality is a plausible co-selector of, of belief and perception, as, as they say. Uh, it's more adaptive to have things that are somewhat hooked in, into reality, at least in the long run, if, if not the short run. So I, I wouldn't set that. I wouldn't set this up completely as uh, either or, and that that people always choose the group over what they know to be true. I, I think there are cases um, where people leave their groups because they believe that the ideologies are either untrue or unjust, and we have to pay homage to that and recognize that because right. that that takes a special kind of moral courage in its own to do that. Right, but I, I think the significance of the theory is that that's the exception, right? That that's sort of a, a, a bit of bravery uh, out of the ordinary. Uh, a bit of bravery is what, you know, creates progress in society. It's, uh, <laughs> right. It's, uh, we're, we're, there's a reason we're not stuck in the Middle Ages entirely. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, so we have this tendency towards system justification that answers epistemic, existential, and relational needs. It, it gives us a sense of certainty a sense of safety, and a sense of belonging in accord with those around us. And those are um, substantial needs that everyone has. And so this is how you end up with, like you give some examples of system justification kind of stories. You mention um, stereotypes about rich and poor people. You know, one of the stories every system tells about itself is about why the people with power in it ought to have power in it. That's right. It's a fundamental question for coordinated, socially organized life. Why do those people have more than other people? Yes. And as you say, if you come to the conclusion, well, it's a random life lottery and it's not fair and we're stuck in this bizarrely unfair system, you you suddenly are uncertain, unsafe. <laughs> That's right. If you say, if you say it out loud, it, it, absolutely, you could be unsafe or uh, or ostracized for sure. Yeah, so this leads to sort of, I mean, this is one of the things I find, this is just one example, this sort of stereotypes about rich people, which 
have always existed, but exist still today, even in light of all we've learned about the sort of capriciousness of financial markets and the kind of lottery of capitalism, we still have these stories, even in contemporary U.S. society, yeah. about rich people basically being smarter and better and deserving to be rich and powerful, right? Yeah. A lot of people have written really good books in the last few years about meritocratic ideology, meritocratic myths, how it, in a way, it's it's uh, keeping a, a lot of people... Uh, signed on to the economic system we have and the educational system that we have, frankly. Yeah. And the flip side being that poor people deserve to be poor. And one of the things that has always been disturbing to me, but that your work really casts a, a light on is all this research we have in the U.S. showing that the sort of strata of people that are just above poverty, that are just barely making a living, are the ones with some of the strongest and most negative stereotypes about poor people. They're the ones most inclined to say that poor people are lazy or drug users or don't take care of their families, and that's why they're poor. Like, Well, I, I don't know. I wouldn't say they're most inclined necessarily. I mean, it's a complicated question. I wouldn't simplify it to that extent. It's possible that they feel freer to say things like that than other people do. I don't know whether they're thinking it more than uh, people at the top. But I, I think at least what's striking to me is the extent to which many poor people do look down upon other poor people and the extent to which, uh, for instance, working class people in the United States reject liberal, progressive, socialist economic policies that they would clearly benefit from in favor of um, something that's quite a bit more conservative and regressive in terms of social re redistribution. And the reasons they do so, I do believe, are at least in part ideological. Yeah, and you see it in other power imbalances, too. You mentioned uh, gender. You know, you sort of have this um, imbalance of gender power, which then results in stories about why that imbalance in gender power is natural and right and makes sense. And then you find those stories even among women, <laughs> right? Sure. M many women, I think, also have a what we might say is a traditional worldview about, about gender relations, um, believe that in some ways at least they should be subjugated to men. And it's the same question. As, it, it's not that women are especially likely to stay in a bad or abusive relationship necessarily more than a non-abusive one. It's that, But it's that a remarkable number of women find themselves trapped in a, an abusive relationship and find it very hard to get out psychologically as well as materially in other ways. And that is in part because we are social beings. We are, Our consciousness is occurring in a, a social context. First of all, we're socialized to think in certain ways, including about gender. And second of all, we're immersed in a, a very intense social system of the family uh, where we come up with our own, as you say, stories about why things are the way they are and why it's okay like this. Um, and these, it's not so easy to break out of that. Uh, it's much easier to see in retrospect or from the outside. It's like trying to see the back of your head, right? Like, <laughs> what are my hidden assumptions? Well, they're hidden. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe a friend or a therapist can help you see it better than you can. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, gender is by no means unique. This is something that social reformers throughout history find over and over again is that the attempt to liberate a group of people who are stuck in an unjust system often not just fails to sort of create enthusiasm among the people <laughs> yeah. who are trying to be liberated, but often a hostility. Often working against 
to some extent, the people you're trying to liberate? Yeah, backlash is always a serious issue when you're talking about making transformative social changes. Upsetting the status quo can be very psychologically disturbing to people, including people who don't have it so well under the status quo. But they're, of course, afraid that things could get even worse. And that is always a possibility. That's part of the uncertainty. Right. So, and yeah, and it's been pointed out many on many, many occasions for many decades by social scientists and others that many of the social movements on behalf of the disadvantaged in society are led not necessarily by people who are at the bottom, but people who are at the top of at least those groups. Right. Maybe not the very top of society, but at least middle or middle upper class people. You know, you say that system justification is, I think, in an obvious and intuitive way, helpful and pleasant for those in the systems that are benefiting from them, right? The privilege, like it's good for the subjective well-being of the privileged in society to think that their privilege is natural, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and the way it's meant to be. Sure. But it's a little more complicated story about the people who are, you know, sort of on the ass end of the system who are not, who are not benefiting from it. Right. Um, you say in the short term for those people, system justification can offer sort of a palliative, you know, could make you feel better in the short term because of these psychological needs we were discussing. But you point out in the long term, it's not really good for a group of people to think of themselves as naturally lesser. You're absolutely right. You, you've read the book very carefully and I'm grateful for that. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's a, a subtle point. Uh, and there's only maybe a handful of studies that have really looked at the short term versus long term differences. But that's absolutely my my take uh, at this point is that believing in the legitimacy of the system, sometimes even against some of the evidence, at least, can have short term palliative benefits. It can keep your motivation going. It can keep you working uh, harder and and feeling like you maybe do have some self-efficacy in the system. You have some opportunities to succeed. But the longer you're plugging away and the less <laughs> success you experience and, and the less success all the other members of your group are experiencing, I think it becomes, first of all, harder to sustain those illusions, but also sustaining those illusions comes at the cost of your own self-esteem or your own, um, the image or, or the esteem you, you have of your fellow in-group members. I mean, if, if we're all working so hard and we can't get ahead and the system itself is fair and legitimate and desirable, then it must be that we're deficient in some way. One of the most sort of stark examples of all this is slavery in the U.S. And there's some really striking and disturbing <laughs> stuff in the book about slaves' attitudes toward other slaves and even toward themselves. And toward their masters, yeah. The same thing was observed in the Holocaust, in, in concentration camps in World War II, when people are completely dependent for their entire existence. I mean, talk about an existential threat. You know, it's, it's pretty hard to not look for, you know, some way in which what you're experiencing is, is okay. And, you know, looking for whatever silver linings you can possibly find, but also the other people who are suffering, um, the other victims, it's, it's also hard to maintain solidarity with them and keep your own sanity and confidence that you're going to be okay. Right. And that just kind of shows how strong this force is. <laughs> you yes. know, if, it, if it even, you know, even at work among the victims of the Holocaust, 
it just shows, I think, the degree to which human beings are averse to living day to day with the thought that they're in a broken, unjust system that they don't belong in and that they, you know, just that unsettledness is so grating and unhealthy for people that they will resort to justifying almost anything they find themselves in. It's really yeah. mind boggling. I, I think so too. And one of the other stories that was striking was the interviews with um, maids and housekeepers in South Africa, you know, and these are almost all black women serving white families, but they don't think of themselves as unfairly taken advantage of or exploited. Right. Yeah, that's not research that I did myself, but uh, social psychologists in South Africa did these in-depth interviews um, with domestic workers, as you say, and most of them reported uh, that they felt lucky and that they were the beneficiaries of a system that works for everyone. And yeah, again, from the outside, it, it seems it seems pretty surprising. Yeah, they take all this satisfaction basically in playing a role, a needed role in the system, right? That's so satisfying to them that they don't, uh, the larger injustices don't uh, affect them. Mm -hmm. It's just very striking. Unless it's explicitly brought to their attention. I mean, that's the point of kind of critical consciousness raising movements. And we've, you know, all the movements, the, the sort of progressive egalitarian social movements of the last century or two have had that as an element of sort of, you know, we need to look at for instance, gender socialization in a more critical way and to realize that we've been accepting a lot of things as natural and, and fair that we don't have to necessarily. I mean, that's the key of kind of a critical ideology that points out the problems with the social system that that like fish, you know, swimming in the water, we're not always right. aware of. Right, right, right. And this was sort of the, the thrust of when feminism says the personal is political. Yeah. It's the same thing, trying to make that shift, like the system that you're involved in take a step back and try to look at it from the outside. Right. I, I think I think it's a useful exercise to think about what women today think about these things and what, what they did 70 years ago and, and to do that thought experiment because I think it's easier to understand something like how system justification or dominant ideology can operate if you really understand how, let's say, the average housewife 70 years ago thought about things. Our, our own mothers or grandmothers, right, or great-grandmothers. Right. Progress does happen. It's just, I guess, what you know, when you're coming up like me as a fresh-faced, innocent person who believes in reason and dialogue and persuasion, it just seems like it shouldn't be that hard, right? <laughs> right. Of course. Well, we, all, we all kind of think that. And, and maybe we see, again, we see it in others more readily than we see it in ourselves. But I think that's absolutely correct. But also that, that you, I don't even know how old you are and it doesn't matter. But the point is that we're born into a new generation. And that is part of this system justification process. Um, because the way things are when we're sentient beings is the status quo for us for in many mm -hmm. different ways. So the world that girls are born into and, and raised in today is a very different social system than 70 years ago or 40 years ago. Right. So um, you say... Quoting here, the strength of system justification, motivation, and its expression are expected to vary according to situational and dispositional factors. In other words, this system justification is not a, a set quantity. It's not some standard unit that exists in all people and places the same. 
you know, shift this way and that based on circumstances and disposition. I want to save disposition for later because it's the one I'm most interested in. But let's talk about situational or contextual sort of factors. So what kinds of circumstances are likely to elicit system justification? So we've got experimental studies on this, and we've also got sort of archival studies um, that involve how people respond, for instance, before and after 9-11, how people respond before and after terrorist attacks uh, around the world. And um, we're still sort of trying to suss out what happened during COVID. Um, (laughs) But I I think there's a general picture that's emerging that's consistent with what you and I have been talking about with regard to uncertainty and threat, um, that events that happen or situations that just happen to you or me or events that are big enough situations that they are happening to all of us all at the same time, highly threatening circumstances that are filled with uncertainty, such as terrorist attacks or war or an economic crisis. These are things that are, that put most of us into a state where we want more certainty, we want more safety, we want mm-hmm. more conformity, um, social belongingness. And that puts us in a mindset, I think, that is more conducive to hankering down on the status quo, justifying and defending the way things are now, rather than thinking about ways of improving the system. So in a way, thinking about how to improve things is a luxury that we can only really have as a society when we're feeling like things are are pretty good, when we're feeling that things are pretty secure, pretty safe, and, and we're pretty um, much in agreement. When there's a lot of discord, when there's a lot of uncertainty, when there's a lot of insecurity or threat, it's, I think, difficult for people to, you know, think about alternatives or even improving the social systems that we have. That's such a maddening catch-22. Yes. <laughs> Though, yes. Don't you think? It's like, yeah. I mean, and, and 9-11 is such a perfect, you know, you'd never wish it on anyone, but it is an ideal case study for this kind of things. Because if, the, you know, 9-11 very much created uncertainty, in the minds of the U.S. public, like Absolutely. is it going to is it going to happen again? Who did it? You know, like are there terrorists in my small town? Yes. <laughs> remember that. Remember that whole thing. Absolutely. And then, obviously, existential safety. You know, like uh, risks. And um, you know, you saw in the wake of nine eleven just this intense immediate pressure toward conformity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. President Bush's approval ratings were, what, 86%? God, yeah, I know. What it never, we'll never see again. Yeah. But I mean, this is what I mean about a catch-22. It's like those who are on top of the system and who benefit from those lower in the system accepting things, right, can use, can create the very uncertainty and threats that reinforce the system, right? Like you saw, I mean, you saw that in the wake of 9-11. Basically, Bush and the Republicans did everything they could to heighten uncertainty, heighten threat, right? Remember the the threat levels? Orange, (laughs) orange, yeah, orange, red, yeah. I think that's right. I, I, it's obviously, it's not only the U.S. government that does that, but um, governments all over the world do this pretty routinely. I, I think that's right. And, and that's why I think people who, who are interested in improving people's lives and, and creating better and more just social systems have to 
wait for the right moments and be opportunistic when they have a, a brief opening to make some changes um, before people have completely forgotten what the problems were, uh, <laughs> right? So it's, I do think I have to say, uh, I've come to the view that it's much easier to govern in a, from the right um, in a system justifying conservative uh, manner because you can always frame your, your opposition as a threat. Yeah, this is what I mean. Like anytime there's a little glimmer of social change or a glimmer of consciousness pushing towards social change, it's just trivially easy if you're a powerful person or at the head of a country to sort of generate the very sort of uncertainty and threat that will quash that <laughs> that consciousness. It's amazing right. that, that, that I think mean, this is sort of the result of my reading both your books is I've just come out sort of amazed that progress ever happens. Right, right. Uh, I, my view of progress is definitely two steps forward, one step back. But you're right. It's, it's amazing we're ever, ever able to take two steps forward. But part of it is because new generations, younger people are born into a different world. Um, and they're able to, at least for until their you know, cerebral cortices are completely frozen <laughs> like ours, uh, they're able to envision new and alternative ways of doing things. I, progress comes from the young. I, th I think that's right. Yes, or one one death at a time, whatever the the uh, yeah maybe cliche so. Yeah, is. That's, that's right. That's the more negative view of it. But yes, <laughs> I mean, uh, this gets to my larger pessimism. My pessimism has layers, but my <laughs> my larger my larger pessimism has to do with it. Just seems like globally, we're heading into a time. You know, just look at climate change. Right, climate change is going to create more disruption, more migrations, more uncertainty and threat, which are going to have the effect of making it more difficult to think clearly about how to solve climate change in a just way. And it just seems like everything's heading that direction, in the yeah. direction of more disruption, more threat, more uncertainty, the very kinds of things that make the problems more difficult to solve. This is a very uplifting podcast, David. Yes, got to tell you. Uh, no, I agree with you, but we're, we're, we're going to sound like Debbie Downers here. But I think I think that's exactly the problem. Over the weekend, I was at an academic conference in social psychology, and, and one of the presentations was about how system justifiers and, and political conservatives do tend to score higher on measures of system justification than people who are liberal or progressive. High system justifiers tend to perceive policy solutions aimed at addressing climate change as more threatening to the status quo, particularly <laughs> the economic system, than they do the threat of climate change itself. Uh, this is where we're at um, with the framing of the problem. You know, we think doing something about climate change is more upsetting to the status quo than waiting for the effects of climate change to happen. And this is a colossal problem, I think. I don't know how pessimistic you want me to be here, but I, I can I can join you if you like. <laughs> well, I think uh, Volt's listeners are pretty accustomed to uh, general pessimism. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about contextual uh, features that will tend to exacerbate system justification to basically anything that kind of tickles those psychological needs we were just referring to earlier for certainty and safety and, and connection to other people. Anything that threatens those or disrupts those tends to strengthen system justification in everyone because everyone has some degree of this. Yes, I think so. But also we need to think about some people are justifying certain systems and not others. So not everyone is justifying every imaginable social system, but probably you've met people who 
are are very critical, for instance, of of the capitalist system or something, but mm. are but are also very sexist and very defending of the <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe <laughs> once or twice you've encountered something like that. Uh, so I think we have to keep in mind that that you know, and and who knows, maybe I'm justifying the academic system, the university system, and so on. We're, you know, we're all justifying social systems and hopefully we can at least at times step back and look at them critically and, and think about issues of justice but uh it's yeah it's important to think about the fact that we can we can satisfy our system justification needs in different domains and not everyone right. is justifying in all the systems although by and large people who justify one of the kind of aspects of the overarching social system tend to justify the others but it's not a perfect correlation Right. And so this gets us to the dispositional differences, which are crucial to your other book about uh, left versus right. So let's just get into that a a little bit different. So the short answer here is that, (laughs) how to summarize your entire second book. (laughs) I don't know. You did a pretty good job with the first one. I'm just impressed that you read uh, both my books. I don't know if anyone outside of my family has read both of the books yet. (laughs) You know, there's this long-running debate in psychology about uh, whether ordinary people have anything that you would refer to as ideology. Right. And uh, uh, we don't have to get into this sort of, um, you know, there's methodological debates around this long-running. But basically, your whole point is that it's very difficult. You cannot cleanly separate ideology from these sort of deeper, more fundamental psychological needs that they sort of feed into one another and that depending on your psychological makeup different kinds of ideology will appeal to you so you can trace a connection between these deep psychological uh, profiles and ideology and secondly and most importantly we find again and again through experimental evidence and the evidence of our eyeballs that there are deep psychological differences between conservatives and liberals, between broadly speaking, the right and the left that are stable over time and that sort of transcend, you know, because the exact expression of left and right obviously differ from place to place, time to time, system to system. But you find these sort of um, deep undercurrents that are are true across systems. And, And one of those is that conservatives are more prone to system justification. So just say a little bit about why that is and how we know that. Yeah, that was an excellent summary of the second book. (laughs) About as good uh, as your summary of my first book. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Yes, uh, there's a lot there. It is a whole book. It is a whole book. (laughs) The way I've come to think about it is there are two kind of fundamental value orientations, let's say, that separate left from right. And this goes back to the French Revolution, if not before. Some people say it goes back even before that. Um, There's passages in in the Bible about the right hand of God and things like this. Mm. Um, But let's say, at least since the French Revolution, the the, the potential for a fundamental clash between uh, people on the left who want more equality, more social equality, more economic equality, more political equality, and they're willing to change the status quo, push for social change in order to arrive at a more equal place. Uh, and there's people on the right who want social stability, social order. They want to maintain 
the, the status quo or at least slow down the pace of, of social changes. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, they end up having to defend and justify existing forms of hierarchy and inequality as legitimate or desirable or both. And this to me is the fundamental left-right distinction in terms of, of values or philosophy or something like this. And I think um, they're correlated dimensions. They're not uncorrelated dimensions. They're correlated dimensions. And the reason they're correlated is for historical reasons, because human beings over a period of hundreds and even thousands of years, in general, most of our traditions have been more hierarchical and less equal. And most social change movements have been in the direction of pushing for more equality, more equality for women, more equality for people of color, more equality for poor people, you know, elimination of of slavery and feudal bondage and all kinds of things in the direction of greater equality and more recently for sexual minorities and so on too. And so that's why system justification is so crucial to this because it's, it's sort of the thing that links those two dimensions uh, together and the dimensions you could think of as equality versus tradition or something. So the right wants to maintain tradition and in order to do that, they are willing to accept, if not push for inequality. And on the left, um, people want more equality and they're willing to upset, upend tradition uh, in order to do that. And system justification is sort of, I think of as the motivational glue that leads people to prefer uh, stability if they're high on system justification and order, uh, again, because it serves these epistemic existential and relational needs to attain certainty, security, order, closure, safety, and conformity and social belongingness. And tradition is all about that, right? Whereas on the low end, people who are less Uh, likely to engage in system justification. They need to be able to tolerate a lot of uncertainty, uh, not only about what the revolution looks like, but, you know, what happens the day after the revolution succeeds. If it succeeds, you know, there's no blueprint, as they say, and things like this. Um, And willing to tolerate a great deal of personal lack of safety. You you don't know if you go to the the protest, you know, if you're going to get arrested or beaten up or thrown in jail or, or what. So you got to tolerate, you have to be pretty high on tolerance of uncertainty and even tolerance for threats, potential threats, mm-hmm. and um, on social belongings, willing to uh, be ostracized even perhaps right. by, by even your own parents or your grandparents or your aunts and uncles or people who don't understand, you know, why you're so upset about <laughs> the American way of life or the American system or something. Plenty of people don't understand the protesters and, and feel that they're out of step with mainstream society. Society and so on. And that's why I think burnout rates are so high among social activists. Uh, it's, it's hard. You need a lot of social support from within the activist community to counter the fact that you're essentially being, you know, excluded from mainstream society as a whole, both actively and passively. So I think, you know, that this creates the possibility for people to, in part because of dispositional things, um, um, which is, you know, personality uh, characteristics, people find themselves at some point on this continuum from left to right, you know, most people are somewhere in the middle, but how close you are to one side or the other is affected, I think, by temperament and personality, even beginning in childhood. Um, and there, there seems like there's some genetic basis, I think, in the psychological characteristics that make people more likely to gravitate toward the left or toward the right if they're in a society uh, with a lot of options, with a, a menu of options from left 
left or right, uh, typically a democratic society where you have a lot of things to choose from and have enough education and interest to be exposed to those things on the menu. So it's all of these things are happening in, in interaction. So I'm not I'm not saying like people are born to be a liberal or born to be a conservative. Right. I'm saying people are born with certain psychological predispositions that increase the likelihood or decrease the likelihood of them gravitating towards specific sets of ideas if they encounter them in their social and cultural environments as they mature. Right. But these dispositions you're talking about here, so I'm going to read a quote from the book. It says, meta-analytic reviews confirm that uncertainty avoidance, intolerance of ambiguity, perceptions of a dangerous world, and death anxiety are positively associated with an affinity for political conservative system justifying ideology. Conversely, cognitive complexity, openness to new experience, and the motivation to prolong cognitive closure are negatively associated with conservatism. Now, when I read those dispositions, it seems to me that they all have a common root, which is basically fear or um, threat sensitivity, whatever you want to call it. The sort of down at the most root brainstem level, people seem to have different sensitivities toward threat. Is that accurate? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't essentialize that so much or say it goes back to the brainstem or anything like that. But I would say that and there are evolutionary theories about why things like authoritarianism, which uh, in democracies tends to be more associated with right-leaning or conservative-leaning politics than with liberal or left-leaning politics. But there are theories about that that suggest that when there are high levels of threat, such as, such as pathogen threat, threats of disease, or threats from outgroup members, threats from, from groups that, that could do harm to us, the group tends to bond together, enforce social norms to a much higher degree, punish deviants, mm -hmm. uh, look for strong leaders, you know, things that we associate with authoritarianism and with maintaining tight traditions and being closed to, you know, people who, who deviate too much from those norms. And so I would say vigilance towards threats, certain kinds of threats especially, I think, yes, they do lend themselves to a more conservative and a more authoritarian way of, of seeing the world and way of thinking. But some of the evidence about, you know, physiological differences and so on has not been replicated. And so it's a, it's a complicated business that people in my field are, are still trying to sort out. This is a good maybe footnote here is there's a lot of controversy about you know, people have been trying to trace these differences deeper and deeper and deeper. And they're like, uh, maybe they're genetic, maybe they're neurological. All that research is highly, um, let's say, provisional and uncertain at it this is. point. It is. But can, but can I just stop you right there? Because, yeah. because the, even the assumption that those things are more fundamental or unchangeable, that's part of the problem here. Because the brain stuff certainly is not that. Our, our brains are changing in response to sure. all kinds of things that we're doing. If we learn to juggle or we learn a second or third foreign language, our brains change dramatically. If we start driving a, a taxi cab, you know, certain parts of our brain where the, you know, geolocations are stored is going to be massively changed as a function of driving a taxi for a couple of years. Um, so we shouldn't think of the brain as fixed. We shouldn't think of it as the cause and everything else, the effect. 
you know, I think it's very, very plausible that the direction of causality runs the other way as well. That yeah. once we become um, inundated with a particular ideological worldview, once we start, I don't know, you know, listening to NPR or watching Fox News, it's going to have effects on our brains over mm -hmm. time after years. So the fact that there are neurological differences, and I think there are some, but you're right to point out we're, we're still just talking about a handful of studies, doesn't mean that the differences originated with the neurocognitive structures or functions. Right. I understand why you're, <laughs> why you're so sensitive about this, because people... Well, I'm not sensitive. I just want people to understand what, what we can and can't get from neuroscience. Right. P people have this weird idea that if you're saying that certain proclivities... Uh, let's say, uh, would urge people to one side or the other that you're somehow essentializing things and, and you're not. You know, I think, we, uh, I think every, we can hold two thoughts in our head, which are that the brain is very plastic mm -hmm. and changes mm -hmm. based on circumstances, but also that it has certain proclivities, right, that, that incline it one way or the other. And those proclivities can be formed by... You know, I think about this a lot. Like, why do some brains end up with this heightened threat response? Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is one area where sort of like uh, physiology and sociology can help. You know, it, it has everything to do with like, did the mother breathe polluted air while she was pregnant? You know, like we can trace these things back. Like, uh, how is the prenatal care? How's postnatal care? Like all these things affect the brain's proclivities that it emerges into the world with. That may very well be true, but let's not rule out the role of social cultural uh, things. If you grow up in an environment where, where people are always suspicious of the foreigner or the person whose food smells different or whatever, that's going to make you vigilant in a way that someone else who grows up in a more cosmopolitan environment isn't going to be vigilant to that sort of stuff. Right. Obviously, there's a two-way causal loop yes. here, right? The proclivities... That's what I'm trying to say. ...affect the circumstances. The circumstances affect the proclivities. They're in a, they're in a, a loop here. That's exactly what I want to say. I, I'm not a reductionist about these things. And, and even on the genetic front, I mean, the, the highest estimates we've seen, and these are based on, um, on comparing essentially you know, identical to fraternal twins, uh, monozygotic to dizygotic twins who are raised in different families, different environments... Uh, the, the monozygotic identical twins do tend to have more similar political attitudes and political orientations mm. in adulthood than the dizygotic same-sex twins who are also raised apart. But the, the maximum amount of the variability in political attitudes that could be explained on, on the basis of this is 40%, which, first of all, leaves you know a lot more to be explained by social and cultural factors. Right. But second of all, even that 40%, I think it's, it's, it's certainly not that there's a, a gene for left and right. right. It's these <laughs> right. psychological characteristics make you more or less open to certainty or uncertainty and threat or or safety, or maybe uniqueness versus uh, conformity. Yeah, the the controversy around this puzzles me somewhat. Like, it just seems to me easy enough to say you'll have these proclivities based on maybe physiological stuff, maybe some genetic stuff, maybe early childhood or, or pre and postnatal care, mm -hmm. and then you know you'll have those proclivities which can be shaped and formed in a million different ways mm -hmm. depending on what kind of society and 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 uh, uh, circumstances you emerge into like obviously both things are going on so when you say we can trace some of this to genetics you're not saying people are born 
<laughs> you know, liberal. That's like right. it's just a weird. Re- but people are very, very, very hypersensitive about that kind of essentializing. So I just well, well, not only that, there's not, there's not a very high level of scientific literacy, I think, in our public discourse, <laughs> especially around politics, and especially maybe with regard to social science. And many people, I think, are are knee-jerk reductionists. I'm not saying you are by any stretch of the imagination, but but most people, when they hear about brain research, they don't think about the fact that situations uh, or experiences can uh, cause changes in brain structures or functions, but they can. Right, right. So this gets back to what we were saying earlier. It's contextual and dispositional. So Yes, I'm, a, I'm a, an interactionist. In my field, I'm a Lewinian person-by-situation interactionist. <laughs> Kurt, from Kurt Lewin, yeah. Yeah, and that's the only um, take that really makes any sense to me. Like, it's just, of course, like, of course, we're not blank slates. That's right. But also, of course, our like specific opinions about, I don't know, welfare policy are not genetically encoded. Like, of course, it's both. Yeah, I think so. But we do end up with psychological profiles that are one or the other, right? Like we do end up with pretty deep differences. Well, I wouldn't say one or the other. I would say that... that on a that spectrum. Can, yeah, that, that's right. That can be located on a spectrum. That's exactly right. I see it as a continuous dimension. I think it's left and right in the political sense. It's like East and West. They're relative to each other. Uh, right. and, they, and they change. Their meaning changes somewhat uh, depending on the context, uh, right? So it's possible that, that someone in the U.S. who considers themselves left of center is actually... Uh, would be right of center with those right. same attitudes in France or whatever, just as, uh, you know, New York is uh, an Eastern city, but not when compared to Paris, you know? <laughs> right. So if you, uh, let's say, emerge from childhood with similar proclivities, you'll be shaped differently, whether you are born in the U.S. or born in France or born in China. Like those proclivities can be shaped into very different political philosophies depending on your circumstances. Oh, for sure. And and that includes the family, that includes schools, that includes right. the political system, the media environment, all those things. And if I think if you're born into a totalitarian system, there's really no menu whatsoever. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think your psychology is going to predict your political attitudes at all in, in a context like that. This theory uh, really only applies to democracies where people have some freedom of choice even within a constrained menu of options, as long as there's some choice, we can we can explain relative preferences within that range. Yeah. You know, obviously the whole book is about these differences uh, between left and right, so we can't cover the whole thing, but there's some of them, some of these sort of experimental results I just found so familiar and telling that they kind of made me laugh, like this one, for instance, um, quoting, On several specific issues, conservatives exhibited the truly false consensus effect by assuming that like-minded others share their opinions more than is actually the case. Liberals, on the other hand, often display an illusion of uniqueness, assuming that like-minded others share their opinions less than is actually the case. That is just so... (laughs) Thanks. I'm glad you appreciated that. There is something funny, maybe, about uh, both sides getting it wrong in opposite directions. I know. I look around, uh, you look around and you see that. Like, this is the moral majority, right? Like, conservatives seem to have this very deep-seated belief that everyone agrees with them, but is just afraid to speak up. Yeah, and of course, that has happened sometimes in history. In social sciences or social psychology, we call that pluralistic ignorance. Mm -hmm. Like, apparently, there was a time when... um, 
alcohol was prohibited and apparently was never a majority opinion of um, American citizens to prohibit alcohol, but people were afraid to say, no, I want to keep alcohol legal. And so a false norm can take place. But I think you're right. The whole issue over abortion maybe is exemplifying that, that conservatives believe that people are, are more supportive of uh, striking down Roe versus Wade than is the case. Apparently, I mean, if the public opinion research is to be believed, what, 62 percent disagree with the Supreme Court's decision, that's uh, maybe a case of pluralistic ignorance on the on the other side there. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, speaking of liberals thinking that their beliefs are more unique than they are, there's there's all this uh, polling I, I read about. Um, I don't know, maybe this was in your book, but early in the civil rights era, like 1960, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, there were polls showing that the majority of the public supported desegregation, inequality, but also that people who supported desegregation and inequality thought that other people disagreed with them, right? Mm. Thought, thought that they were unique in thinking so. Mm. So you had this sort of majority opinion that the majority was not aware of it being a majority. And this is, I feel like liberals get into that a lot. That's a very good point. Uh, that, that, that particular statistic was not in my book, but uh, it's a very interesting one. And I'm also curious whether that was before or after the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision, because we do know that that over time, and we'll see if this turns out to be the case with Roe versus Wade or, or with Dodd, but um, but the Supreme Court decision, because it becomes the, stat, the new status quo, the law of the land, it does have an effect on people's attitudes over time. But we'll, we'll see. But the other point there that that, that I think is germane to that is that political scientists have often distinguished between symbolic and operational ideology. Mm. Um, and symbolic ideology is when you think of yourself in a certain way uh, as a conservative or a liberal. And more people in the United States for a very long period of time have thought of themselves as conservative than as liberal. And I, I think in a way that's consistent with system justification theory, that people want to think of themselves as maintaining the, the social system, the stability, being patriotic, being right. a defender of, of the way things are and our way of life and so on. But on issues, that's the operational part of ideology, on specific policy opinions, people look much more liberal often mm. than on the actual issues. And that's a good example where liberals may not always realize how much support there is for actually liberal policy opinions. And it's kind of an opportunity, let's say. Yeah. And I also think about, in light of this, another phenomenon which we're seeing a lot today, which is people who self-identify as liberals, you know, obviously being subject to this system justification effect, sort of like I grew up thinking of myself as a liberal, but now here I am 50 years old and the kids are telling me to say Latinx mm, right. and, all, and all of a sudden I'm having exactly those feelings that conservatives get, right? Like, that is such a good, a good point. This is too far. Like, yeah. you know, the, the, I changed the system when I was young, but now it's, now it's proper. <laughs> and now like further change, further change yeah. triggers my system justification. No, that's right. And I, I don't think it's a deep philosophical response you're having. I think it's a social psychological one to something that is just outside of the bounds of how we've come to understand what the status quo is and the status quo gets a kind of default legitimacy. And then when, when young people come up with new gender schemes and a really complicated, you know, uh, 14 by 14 matrix of gender by sexual orientation, <laughs> identification things, uh, for, for people a certain age and older, it's, it's a very, uh, 
kind of shocking experience to work through that. And it's for exactly the same reasons psychologically that conservatives, you know, can't countenance the idea of whites not being a majority in the United States and in the next decade or two. Yeah, I guess it's just more frustrating when liberals do it because there's supposed to be that self-awareness, right? Like there's, there's supposed right. to be that... Uh, That's right, but give give everybody some time to, you know, come right. to it. And I think that, that we've seen this already, I think, that liberals and progressives have been the first, which doesn't mean they're always fast enough, but the first to embrace uh, new ways of thinking about sexual identities and, and gender identities and orientations and so on. Yeah. And then over time, it spreads to the rest of the population. Um, uh, it, it may take conservatives another 10 or 20 or 30 years behind that. But in general, most historical trends have been in that direction or, around these kinds of issues. Yeah. I just think it's very, very difficult to maintain even if you're born with the sort of proclivities, the sort of openness to experience and all these other um, sort of characteristics of liberals, it's just very difficult to consistently maintain that over a lifetime, to retain that sort of negative capacity, that sort of thought that like all my beliefs are provisional, you know, things are still going to change. I'm going to be open to change. It's just, uh, you know, you get old and... <laughs> yeah, uh, right. No, I, I think you're you're right, both about personality in the sense that we know that um, some personality traits change more in certain decades of your life, and then and then sort of stabilize. Um, and different traits are are changing a lot in your teens and your twenties, and other traits are coming online and mattering more in your thirties and forties, and so on. So you're you're right, both at the level of personality and probably also at the level we've been talking about brain formation and, and so on and what mm -hmm. is and isn't continuing to develop in the human brain into your 20s and 30s and beyond. But also, I think you're right in terms of the experiences that people have. And there are big cohort effects that I think are very consistent with what we've been saying about system justification. You know, the world is as you encounter it at your moment in, in time, whether it's when you're 18 or 25 or 30, whenever your worldview comes together, that is the status quo for you. And even if you're motivated to keep updating, sometimes you feel like, uh, like you don't want to. It's a motivational question, <laughs> right? And, but, but I think some people deserve credit for sticking with it and thinking more deeply about things that were initially upsetting to their sense of, of reality that were initially threatening to their epistemic existential and relational needs or yeah. motives, but they worked through it and they, they came to a position where they can be open to new ideas or other people. If, if those ideas are, are worth, you know, being, being open to and supporting. Yeah. This is part of why I wanted to do this pod and part of why I wanted to just get the sort of notion of system justification out there is just to make people a little bit more self-aware or self-conscious about it. Like if you find yourself in a position of saying that kids these days <laughs> yes. are, are lazy, you should have a glimmer of self-awareness. Like, oh, wait a minute. All the other old people throughout all of history have thought that about young people. Maybe there's something, maybe these are psychological proclivities acting on me that I'm not fully aware of and I should take a step back, you know, like just people, yeah. people just don't do that. People are, or people will say, people will, will repeat sort of misogynist mm -hmm. myths, you know, like Hillary sounds shrill, like my ex-wife mm -hmm. with no glimmer of like, wait a minute, <laughs> that's what all the other misogynists said about all the other women throughout history. Maybe I'm not making an objective assessment of Hillary Clinton here. Maybe 
there are forces acting on me that I should be more aware of. I don't know why that's so difficult for people, but... I think that's absolutely right. So maybe we should we should try to destigmatize a little bit this process of system justification and re- recognize that all of us experience it to some degree or another. Yeah. Uh, yes. But but also I I do think some people are more willing to prioritize yeah. other concerns such as accuracy, such as social justice, and such as you know innovation. And I think all of those things can be things that counter the system justification motives that maintain the status quo. Right. And at our best, we can create social systems like science itself that encourage accuracy, that encourage mutual fact-checking, and that encourage openness to correction. Like yes. you can, Ideally, you can create system justification for good systems if you, you, know, if you can pull it off. I think that's exactly the ideals of the liberal democratic system, where you have uh, a plurality of voices and arguments and reasoned debate. This is the ideal, obviously, not the actual we're talking about here. <laughs> um, reasoned debate about what the facts are and what counts as evidence. And then you have a free vote and you resolve it with the mechanisms of democracy. You resolve the conflict, and it's an unambiguous result. And you move on to the next thing to debate. And I think that is the ideal of, of a liberal democratic system. And I think we're very, very far from that ideal right now, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So a, a couple of final questions. Um, I know that a lot of people are going to hear that conservatives are prone, more prone than liberals to system justification. And then they're going to look at Trump and Trump voters mm-hmm. who appear to be willing to tear everything down. <laughs> yes, while making America great again, by the way. Yes. Uh, yeah, so so to help people square that circle. Like, why yeah. does this apparently radical movement that doesn't seem to give a shit about the sanctity of any of America's systems, how is that commensurate with conservatives being more prone to system justification? Yeah, Trump definitely made a lot of things more complicated for social scientists and social theorists to understand. But um, but first of all, I think what he did was he tapped into a lot of anger about the pace or perceived pace of social change. And that's why this slogan of Make America Great Again mm. resonated with so many people, which, which of course is a slogan from Reagan's campaigns. So it, it is a very conservative message, and it is a message, and the way he delivered it was tapping into, I think, a lot of, um, especially, let's say, you know, white males' frustrations at how things for them uh, seem to be much better when they were 20 or 25 <laughs> than they are now. Uh, and the world was looked different, um, you know, much less diversity and much less salience of social and cultural diversity. Um, so he tapped into, I think, a lot of resentment about social change and the pace of social change mm-hmm. and the feelings that the movements for equality had gone too far and were now, you know, biased against whites, which is a, a, an opinion that a lot of people have, even though it's mm-hmm. a, a false opinion, I, I would say. <laughs> um, but you're right. He also used the language that was very disruptive of the status quo, and, and that was maybe part of his appeal. So I, I think in some sense people are frustrated with the status quo, but they don't have a good understanding of the origins of their dissatisfaction with the status quo. And they also at the same time want to go back to some 
idealized version of an earlier time for them. And so they're, they are open to rhetoric that sounds like it's, uh, you know, going to shake up the status quo when in fact what it's really going to do is restore <laughs> the older uh, mm-hmm. hierarchies. And so it's kind of having your cake and eating it too, in a way, <laughs> yeah. in that sense. But, but, but I do have... I do have an empirical answer, though, for you, because we studied that. Oh, yeah. The question that you're talking about, about, about whether Trump supporters were higher or lower in system justification mm-hmm. relative to supporters of other candidates. And the answer is they were uh, lower on general system justification, but higher on economic and gender-specific system justification. Mm. So they were more likely to justify the system in economic domains like capitalism and in gender domains like traditional um, division of labor within the family and within society. But less likely, especially compared to the other conservative candidates, to justify the whole American society as a whole. Interesting. And it also seems like, I mean, one of the sort of characteristic features of fascism is this idealized past, right? This idealized um, thing that we've lost, the system that we've lost. So in a sense, you can sort of bring system justification to bear on a system that is itself somewhat mythical, right? Like it's, yeah, it's, I think it's possible in both directions in a way, um, to justify imaginary social systems, <laughs> whether they're imaginary versions of, of some, you know, Nordic past or whatever, or some utopian system that never has been. And maybe that's a way that people can try to satisfy their epistemic existential and relational needs while not buying into the immediate status quo. Yeah, and another weird inversion that that Trump has pulled off, and I, maybe this is characteristic for authoritarians too, is somehow he's framing things as if the radicals, the outsiders, the agitators, the people who want to change your beloved system, have taken over now and mm-hmm. sort of are the power. And so the system has been taken over by system changers. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, you're sort of like fighting the actually existing system that's run by liberals in an attempt to restore a deeper and more true system that existed before they came along yeah. and screwed everything up. That's a very interesting way to put it. I mean, m- maybe, I mean, he clearly, the, that whole first part is is like system justification by the book. You know, all these people who are critics, n- unpatriotic, threats to the status quo. It's easy to, to turn people against those uh, those people. It's a, it's a, a tactic that's been used since time immemorial for the, for, for leftists probably was used in the French revolution and certainly throughout the 20th century in, in the United States. But the other part is interesting too, because it does suggest that, that you can get some motivational juice maybe from also shaking up, uh, or making people realize that they are frustrated with aspects of the status quo, even if they're not fully aware of it, or even if they're not aware of the true sources of their dissatisfaction. So I, I think it's very possible that many Trump voters are extremely frustrated with the effects of global capitalism, but they don't see it that way at all. <laughs> they don't make the connections. They, they instead, they have been led to believe that it's because of immigrants or it's because of, you know, journalists or whoever else. Um, right. It's this bizarre empower inversion that all fascism and fascism adjacent uh, sort of movements seem to do, which is to say the groups who are properly outsiders, right, who are properly on the bottom of the system have taken over, right? This is always kind of the, the fascist message, like the proper order of the system. The people who are supposed to be in charge have been displaced 
by outsiders. So we yeah. got to restore the proper operation of the system, basically. Yeah, I think you're describing kind of exclusionary populism, right-wing populism, which aims perhaps to impose some kind of authoritarian or even fascist social order in order to you know provide that all of that safety, security, uh, and, and so on. But the appeal early on is that, yes, the elites are the problem. And in this case, if you can paint the elites to be your political opponents, like, you know, liberals, whatever, journalists, minorities, etc., and that they don't deserve the full spectrum of rights afforded people in the, in the United States, then they should be excluded. And that's in contrast with left-wing populism, which tends to be more inclusionary Mm. and also is critical of elites, but in their elites are different, right? The the elites there are the, sometimes it's, it's, you know, conservative governments, sometimes it's Mm. capitalists, et cetera. Uh, Sometimes it's religious elites and so on, on behalf of a more exclusionary definition of the people, which might include women, minorities, uh, people from other countries and so on. Um, so yeah, it's a populist message that appeals to right wing sentiments. And we have seen it throughout history. You're absolutely right. I've kept you too long, but I, I wanted to at least address here at the end. I think if people read these two books, it's pretty bleak. <laughs> this, well, that's not why I wrote them. <laughs> this, I mean, people, uh, Let's just say everyone has this in them. And so the fight or the push to change things is, in a sense, always the underdog, right? It's always you're not you're not fighting on a level playing field here. It's the field is, in a sense, always tilted against change because of this system justification that all people are subject to. But, you know, as you point out, change has happened, uh, progress has happened, somehow system justification has been overcome, at mm-hmm. least at the margins, mm-hmm. um, you know, repeatedly throughout history. So it can't be that we've talked ourselves into thinking that progress is impossible because progress is clearly not impossible. So let's... Right. let's no, no, my view is not fatalistic in that, in that way at all. So let's talk about... You know, if I'm a change maker, whether, you know, I'm an activist or a, or a politician or just a concerned citizen and I want change and I read and appreciate and internalize this work about system justification and I now know in my head that when I go out and try to change, you know, zoning, <laughs> zoning laws in my mm-hmm. town mm-hmm. or or the, the label on the bathroom door, whatever change I want to make there's going to be a a certain level of automatic resistance. People automatically are going to be nervous about change and not want change. So as an activist, having internalized all this, how do I operationalize it? Like what kinds of things would you advise people to do to overcome system justification or work around it? Yeah, no, that's, that's good. And I do, I do talk about this in the book. Some, I think there's, first of all, to be aware of the, and to anticipate that resistance in the in precisely the ways that you and I have been talking about it in both even understandable ways in which people find new ideas a little bit hard to grasp or something 
let alone to be inspired by them. That's one thing. But it, but also, you can't get around social organizing for change. I mean, it's just telling you that you need more resources and more of an organized ability to overcome that resistance. The resistance is not you know, something that could never be overcome, but it's something that's going to take more more effort to overcome. And, and if it's easy to do, maybe it's not you know, you don't, you don't need to do it <laughs> so, more than, more than clever arguments even. Yeah. Right. Much, much more than, more clever than a bunch of scientific facts. Clever arguments are not, not necessarily going to win the day. Right. Um, but the other thing we talk about is uh, w- one is to try to avoid running into the headwinds of motivated system defensiveness. So being aware that this is a possibility and trying to avoid it and rather, rather than provoking and eliciting motivated system defensiveness by just poking people right in the status quo. Right. This is something liberals need to be aware of is yeah. that if you if you feel like the prospect of radical change is exciting <laughs> and you're into it, like you need to know that you are unusual, right? Yes. And if yes. you go out with that as the headline, you're going to be in a tiny minority of people. That's exactly right. And and the other thing is that we talk about um interventions that actually take advantage of system justification motivation in various ways by framing uh, certain policy initiatives as congruent with the aims or the ideals of the societal status quo. And so just one you know, small example we had, and it was an experimental study we conducted about uh, resistance to support climate action. And what we found was that um, high system justifiers could be persuaded to be more supportive and more open to thinking about climate action when we framed uh, the threats of climate change as uh, and, and doing something about it as patriotic and a way of conserving the American way of life against um, environmental right. challenges. Protecting the status quo yeah. against climate change, yeah. right? Which yeah. is going to radically change it. That's right. And the other, the another, you know, historical example, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was a genius at doing this, was tying the egalitarian goals of his movement to uh, the American uh, ideals about, mm-hmm. about freedom, equality, democracy, and so on. He was constantly referencing the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and things. Uh, and in stark contrast to Malcolm X, for instance, who, uh, you know, said, I didn't land on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock landed on me, <laughs> you know, a clear declaration that I am not part of this system, I'm against the system. Right. Martin Luther King was using the system to persuade people to make changes, to make the system fulfill its its promise. Well, in a, a more contemporary example, very, very similar, um, I always thought this was Barack Obama's most brilliant rhetorical device you know, which I guess he sort of took from uh, Martin Luther King Jr., which is to say America's struggle to be better, to perfect itself, to be more equal, is the American status quo. That's what America is, right? Like, so that's what we're trying to defend here. That's what we're trying to pay tribute and and live up to here is the American system. The American, the struggle for greater equality is the American system. That's what Obama always emphasized over and over and over again. I think that's right. And and now if we want to preserve what's left of our democracy, I, th- I think that people who, who feel that our historical legacy around democracy, which used to be, you know, the envy of the world in many in many ways, not maybe not the whole world, but lots, <laughs> lots of it. I think we need to have that same kind of 
defense and pride in that legacy, but, or we're going to lose it. Yeah, well, uh, that seems like a good place to wrap up here. Um, thanks so much. I really, uh, uh, the books were very uh, eye-opening and interesting to me. I urge other people to read them or at least, at least read the, the summary chapters. It's, it will sort of, um, I think, change the way uh, you approach trying to change things, <laughs> mainly by daunting you <laughs> to, to begin with. Well, the first step towards uh, overcoming a problem is, is correctly diagnosing it, right? Exactly, exactly. All right, thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, David. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.